We are gathered here today to say farewell to our comrade Owen Smith and to commit him into the hands of God. Lord our God, you are the source of life. In you we live and move and have our being. Keep us in life and death in your love and by your grace lead us to your kingdom. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We will now share some of our fondest memories of Owen. I um, remember when Owen Smith said uh, that... Sorry, I just need to take a moment. When Lee... He said to Leanne Wood that the only reason she was on Question Time was because she was a woman. Owen, um, I'll never forget when you lied about your wife's school being overrun by immigrants. Uh, Owen, I remember the time when you said that you had to fight off loads of men to get your wife. Owen, I'll never forget when you said Jeremy Corbyn lacked patriotism because he said he was happy for Serena Williams winning Wimbledon. Uh, I'll never forget the time that you alluded to um, a press conference that you had a massive penis. Owen, I'll never forget the time when you pretended you'd never heard of a cappuccino and instead claimed that people in the valleys called cappuccino a frothy coffee. Owen, I remember all the times you blocked uh, anything to do with devolution such as policing. Owen, I remember the time when you publicly undermined Jeremy Corbyn and tried to replace him as the leader of the Labour Party. I also remember the time that Owen Smith publicly undermined Jeremy Corbyn in an attempt to uh, (laughs) replace him as the Labour leader. Oh, the other time. Uh, And that one, I remember those two. I mean, like, all the times. I've got a good memory and he's done a lot. And Owen, I'll never, I'll never forget the time when, as Shadow Secretary for Northern Ireland, you endorsed Orange Marches. There's a lot of memories, a lot of moments. Give him, O Lord, your peace and let your eternal light shine upon him. Amen. Amen again. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. You gave him life. Receive him in your peace and give him, through Jesus Christ, a joyful resurrection. This is a giant cock. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> thinking you'll bury him near that old Indian burial ground, he'll come back, but sometimes that is better. <laughs> Just come back wrong, the ground there went sour. Even the Indians stopped using it. Okay, <laughs> what's been happening in Wales this week, Nath? Um, Wales this month. Wales this year. Uh, okay, so... Obviously, our comrades died that we're very sad about. So, you know, we're going to tie some shoelaces together and throw them over some phone cables, or electricity cables, to kind of um, eternally, uh, you know, remember him. Um, so, the Seven Bridge, I don't know if you heard about this, Dan. <laughs> it's not many, not much has been said about it. But the Seven Bridge, uh, the second one, is going to be renamed Prince of Wales Bridge. Oh, you did hear about it? I did, yeah. All oh, right. I'm happy about it. I'm happy as well. I'm hoping that Prince of Wales will come and open it and then come to my house for some Welsh cakes. Absolute ledge. Charles, yeah. boy. Charles. Shagger. <laughs> right, Shagger. Right, Shagger. I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm just really struggling to be bothered about things anymore. But what's weird is that people are kicking off at Alan Cairns. So Alan Cairns, you know, 
the Secretary of State of Wales is the puppet. You know, everyone says he's like George Thomas. Like obviously, Keynes is like a crawling sycophant. His only name in this bridge to carry favour because he wants a title once he sort of steps down off his little box. I mean, but but it, <laughs> and it turns out he writes a letter to Carwin Jones and Carwin Jones signs it off and is fine with it. And then you've got Labour politicians on Twitter saying this is terrible, blah blah. And it's like, well, your man has just literally endorsed it. So the hypocrisy of it. I mean, I don't understand how people can get pissed off with Cairns. I just don't get it. I mean, he is what he is, pissed, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. If you can get pissed off with anyone, get pissed off with Carwin Jones. who claims to be a socialist, a first minister, but I was, I was funny because, um, like, naturally people would be like, "We should call it Glendore Bridge. We I should know, call it like, Llewellyn Bridge. Just when you call it Rainbow Bridge or something, just you know, paint it Mario Kart colours. It'd be fucking great." I kind of feel that if you look at the broad sort of scheme of things, the Welsh tend to sort of kick off about things like this, like symbols, you know. The Ring of Steel, yes, that was Ring of Steel was terrible, uh, and yes, again, that was like something that was like, a ridiculous thing signed off by Labour. You know, the flag outside Neath Castle, or was it Neath Castle? Yeah, you but know, it, the, 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 the dragon being removed, and then you know, the Union Jack being flown. It, it, I, it turned out that it had actually been damaged. But I it? just, I, I just, I'm not saying it's hypersensitive, but I'm just, I just think there are more important things to be upset about and campaign about. I mean, like you know, like child poverty, homelessness. You know, militarism in schools. I mean, if there's, you know, people making fun of Washington. You know, there are, you know, there are, mili- you know, there are army cadet units being set up in state schools, and there's no petitions about that. The renaming of the bridge, you can sort of unpack it, and there are a lot of things wrong with it. Obviously, there's this like colonial mindset, I guess that it, that we talked about with Kirsty Harter. but it also I mean, the thing that I probably get pissed off, most pissed off about is is that the fact that Labour Labour know nothing about like tourism and heritage marketing that and how a country is perceived i mean the idea that you know because calling it something like that like the prince of wales bridge i think it's basically a raising sort of cultural cultural difference but yeah i mean i can see where they're coming from but at the same time is it just it almost jumps the shark a bit doesn't it well what people are pissed off about is that this is kind of like i think since brexit in particular obviously this whole has been happening but since brexit i think unionism or you know the unionists have become a bit more sort of bold you know like a lot of things that were promised to to Wales have been reversed, you know, the transpired that Theresa May, you know, personally like vetoed the plan to electrify the Swansea to Cardiff rail line. Oh yeah, and and then the other day that the what is it, the justice, devolution of justice and policing is is now going to be sort of those powers are going to be handed to London and Manchester. Mm-hmm. But obviously they're not going to be handed to Wales. People are blaming the Tories for that. And I just don't get it. I mean, you know, Theresa May blocking the electrification of the rails, alright, okay, why wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. Numerous people, like, you know, was it Rachel Minto and Joe Hunt have written an amazing paper looking at Carwin Jones's sort of negotiating um, stance over Brexit, but it applies to everything. Carwin Jones is so committed to this idea, this strategy that was espoused by Rodri Morgan of basically being a good unionist and being as well-behaved as possible in the hope that things are going to... You're going to be rewarded for your good behaviour. It's just idiocy. It's just so stupid because it just means that Wales has no leverage. And so when... Theresa May pulls things like that, the electrification of the rail. Well, why wouldn't she? Because what's Wales going to do? Nothing. You know, they've got no political leverage. It's not like, you know, the SNP have got a fiery, inspirational leader who stands up for Scotland and is going to, you know, SNP MPs are going to make a massive racket in Westminster. They can threaten to leave the union. What's Wales going to do? Absolutely nothing. No one in Wales votes. People in Wales vote for Brexit. And, and, and again, if you look at the electrification of rail, um, it's something that, Labour could have solved because they were offered the devolution of 
rail infrastructure back in 2008, I think it was, or maybe 2014, and they rejected it. So all these things that people hammer the Conservatives of Westminster for, Labour are just getting away with it. Well, Welsh Labour are just getting away with it again and again and again. And what was the other thing that has happened? Oh, the devolution of justice, devolution of policing. Okay, yeah, like, people like, well, Westminster's trolling Wales. Okay, well, who was it that blocked devolution? Who was it that blocked the devolution of policing? It was our recently deceased Comrade Mm. Owen Smith. It wasn't, obviously the Tories are, but obviously the Tories are going to block things like that. It's Labour MPs and the Labour people in the Labour Party that, that cause these problems. If it wasn't for them, th- you know, things wouldn't happen. And it's an easy get out for Labour Party and Wales, well, isn't it? Because is. you'd be like, listen, we're doing our best, but like, we're not, you know, we're getting. But the bridge, thing, the bridge thing sums it up. You've got Labour MPs <clears throat> saying, this is a disgrace. I was like, all right, well, can't we just sign it off? Have mm. a word with him. Yeah. Um, take it up with him. I don't know. Maybe I mean, make you disappear like you did Carl Sargent. But I just. <laughs> I, thing is, I love it. I love the fact that Ken's is winding people up. He's rustling the entire nation. It's class. You've got to respect that. You've got to respect the he, fact that he's just like, it, whatever, I can do what I want. He is almost the literal troll under the bridge, isn't he? Yeah, it? it's class. Charging then, charging goats for... <laughs> oh, something funny I, I heard. So Adam Price was like talking about the need to study Welsh history, and he sort of drew a comparison with what's happening now in terms of the <laughs> mindset, this like colonial mindset and the English making sure we know our place in, in the way that they've done things like the bridge. And he said about Owen oh, Glendua's son, I think, or one of the Welsh prince's sons, who got kept in a cage in Bristol in a castle um, and was, like, displayed there to um, sort of put the Welsh... In, make sure the Welsh knew the place. Yeah, then Martin, that's, a, that's a good gig, man. But note. then Martin Johns said, well, actually, um, he was only put in the cage at night. <laughs> <laughs> that's Martin, though, isn't like it? revisionist. Yeah, he'll just be like, yeah, but I think you'll find... I like, think you'll find that they actually only caged him for 12 hours a day, not 24. And he was hosed um, down every two weeks. Yeah. He'll be absolutely immense to put Alec in the cage, man. <laughs> He'd fit as well. You could get one of those hamster like, cages. Although... Those rover stacks. I am a bit uncomfortable when people start making fun of people for being short and bald. Like, it's just... Yeah. No, hate, nobody's making fun of anyone being bald. That seemed a bit a like hate, insecurity. It's, it's a hate crime. <laughs> yeah. This is a hate crime. It is. What else? What else happened? So... Uh, yeah, I mean, our friend you, Hugh Thomas wrote something. Oh yeah, so online. Hugh, Hugh Thomas. Oh, God, man, these, these, Do you hear about so the weird. rumor about Hugh Thomas? What? Um, it's quite well founded that as a child he lost all his teeth, and uh, in an emergency they just got horse's teeth and put it in. What? <laughs> yeah, like George Washington. <laughs> I thought George Washington had wooden teeth. No, he actually had a combination of horse and hippo. That's really? that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. Um, so he apparently say like, with the tiger teeth. Yeah, he. Yeah. He was ill with, I think, smallpox, and at the time, it was you would give him they mercury. Still small, they still have smallpox in Caradigan. Yeah, they do. That's what happened to... Um, a plague. <laughs> that's what happened to Hugh Shit Thomas. <laughs> and then he managed to rise above his his like position in society. And All right, so basically, Hugh Thomas wrote this article saying that, you know... Horse teeth are great. Uh, basically, you know, it's the effect of... Again, it's trolling. Um, he's a smart, switched-on... Horse know, tooth scarily sort of slippery career politician so i'm sure he's he knows what he's talking about but he's basically said that everyone in wales needs to get behind the fact that cardiff's getting all the money and resources mm. and you better deal with that um, and everything's going to agglomerate in south wales uh, and there are so many things going on in there calvin jones sort of tried to engage them in cardiff it, with hugh thomas and sort of point out that actually you know all the economic theory well firstly hugh thomas is i mean the idea that cardiff is a success story is in the first instance absolute bullshit, as we we've, mm. we've sort of talked about on our podcast. You know, Cardiff can't solve it. Cardiff is a disgrace of a city. Like you know, um, can't even solve like the kind of rubbish problem. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I hate the fact that my personal Twitter account has been reduced to just moaning about 
about litter. Um, That's how it started, mine, wasn't that, it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, full circle. Yeah. But, I mean, Cardiff, you know, has a massive problem with homeless. It's got a massive problem with waste management. It's got no social housing. It's a boring generic. Anyway, I mean, we can go into the problems of Cardiff. Uh, we day. have. But as Calvin pointed out, this idea that Cardiff's some sort of super, you know, this huge success story, like economic powerhouse, is absolutely bullshit because all the public sector funding and stuff has just been, all the money has just been pumped into Cardiff. It's not, mm. a na- it's not natural. I mean, Cardiff's got all the state apparatus. You know, it's got the Assembly. It's got Cardiff Bay. It's got um, the Welsh Government. It's got the BBC. It's got got the university. All these things are, are money from the public purse. It's not, you know, Cardiff's not this amazing entrepreneurial hub. And also, as Calvin sort of challenged Hugh Thomas, well, all right then, if you don't need to these... To a fight, if I remember. But if you don't need these things, let's just spread all the public sector things uh, and public services, you know, the, the HQs around Wales now if Cardiff doesn't need them. And obviously that wouldn't happen because Cardiff needs them. Mm. I don't know, but it it's just an example of like, basically Welsh Labour people, I mean, they're all pretty much despite this latest article in Wales Online about the strength of, you know, the so-called strength of Welsh Labour grassroots, you know, from my experience and from what I know, you know, the Welsh Labour sort of hierarchy are certainly, we're talking like Owen Smith would be like the most left and then the rest... There's a space for that. And then the rest are sort of basically hardcore Blairites. And it's just frustrating because if you just bother to read any of the, the myriad academic work on city regions by like Martin Jones, Calvin Jones, you'll see that you know, they're very rarely success stories, and I'm sure the Cardiff City region isn't going to be a success story. Um, what else? Well, it's not all been doom and gloom. We've had two birthdays recently. Um, the trains, some of the trains have recently turned 30. <laughs> so uh, that's really good. Plans. Well, uh, Arriva's rolling stock has actually turned 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So plans for um, the, to celebrate are to perhaps get rid of the toilet facilities or just. <laughs> Close them off so it saves about two grand a month on each train. Class, man. Yeah, and Wait, also is that an actual plan. That is an actual plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. To just bring down costs of using it, and we've also got another very special birthday. Um, I think it was Joe Stevens who pointed out that NATO. Is <laughs> no, really... it was it Griffith. Oh my god! Yeah, happy birthday, NATO. Yeah. Christ. So, um... who are we ruled by? Like, who are <laughs> these people? Not just. It's not bad enough that you're. You're that stupid, and you're that that you think you're claiming that NATO is like this socialistic, internationalist uh, global organization, outreach, rather outreach than program something that was, rather than something that was specifically and explicitly designed to combat the spread of communism. That was its only purpose, and that's still its only purpose. If you look at NATO operations in Estonia, it's not only it's got to be that much of a dipshit to ignore ignore that, or, or that much of a militarist to actually think that NATO plays a role for good around the world, where what they do, in fact, is... Destabilise regions. Destabilise yeah. the Middle East in the, you know, in the service of imperialism. But not just that, you actually have to wish NATO a happy birthday. It's just yeah. like... Well, well is she, I don't know, is she a moron? Is she someone that's... She just loves warfare? I, I wouldn't say that she's someone who loves warfare. It's just, you know, someone who's got into a position and is just, like, going along with it. Like... <laughs> Yeah, but she's shadow defense secretary. Oh, she, maybe she does love war. But then. despite those views, like, so this is the thing. Labour recently have like ramped up this, you know, they're pro-police. We need far more police on the streets. Mm. And now near Griffiths. Oh, now we know Labour aren't going to make any defense cuts. In fact, we're going to have a really much stronger military than the We're going to have a people's military. But yeah. it's like, I don't know. It's just, obviously I am going to write about this when I get time. But that's one of the reasons, you know, never get your hopes up about a Labour government. Because they're always going to be... Well, militarist in particular, like foreign foreign uh, policy, is one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn will struggle to change the most. And in fact, that was one of the things that Owen Smith 
tried to define himself against Jeremy Corbyn, basically saying that he was sort of an interventionist. Mm. And the, Owen Smith was like, well, that's the Labour tradition. Of, he was basically. he was planning to get um, uh, meet Bashar al-Assad and get his cock out in front of him, and then Bashar would realise like there's it's no respect way. in it. Yeah, it's just respect. Look at look at the length of this. This is a giant cock. And then he'd just be like, "Real, recognised, real." <laughs> <laughs> the earthquake in the Middle East, like. Okay, so we're gonna today try something a bit, little bit different, and well, I'll say it's gonna be the start of a series. Yeah, depending how it goes, <laughs> depending how, how many goes. listens we get. Uh, I mean, every time we say we're gonna do something a bit different, we do it, and it. It always goes pretty badly in terms of people do stuff about Wales. Yeah, I want an episode on the Welsh language and Wales <laughs> is completely oppressed. And if it wasn't oppressed, it's the best country in the world that I happen to live in. Yes. But I mean, I've been hustling, haven't I? I've been doing working my two jobs. Yeah, on the streets, one of them. Pu- sell, pushing sell, products. Selling my CDs. Yep. Yeah, pushing, moving weight. Yeah. Uh, and by weight, I mean sociological theory. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about the French sociologist uh, Pierre Bourdieu. Well, hopefully you'll see over the course of, I was going to say lecture, over the course of this episode, how important and relevant he is. And the reason I w- wanted to do an episode on him is because, so I did, I studied Bourdieu all through my PhD, and I've not really engaged with his theories for a while because I've been doing sort of more policy-oriented work. And I just love him. I just think he's the best. Like, he's sort of pure sociology. I mean, a lot of, I mean, a lot of sociology like now. Pure product, <laughs> not cut with anything. A lot of sociology now, uh, in my humble opinion, um, is just wank. It's just shit navel gazing rubbish that just sort of looks at micro phenomenon without relating it back to structural forces in society. It's just navel gazing. I don't really like it. But Pierre Bourdieu, as soon as you read him, everything starts to make sense. Everything around you starts to make sense in terms of power, in terms of why people are the way they are, in terms of you know your work, your family, your relationships. So as I said to my students in Bath, like once you once you do read him, there isn't any going back. Red pilling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, do you want me to to do a little overview of his life, Nate? Well, first of all, who is he? And obviously we know who he is, we just introduced him. What was his favourite colour? I don't know. So, Bourdieu is basically one of the greatest French thinkers of the 20th century, if not the greatest French thinker. And obviously that's a pretty big deal in a society which is well known for producing big thinkers. You know, Foucault, Poulain-Sass. Um, Sartre. Sartre, yeah. So... He's Plastic a, Bertrand. <laughs> Emmanuel Macron. Yeah. So he's basically at the, uh, you know, he's famous enough. They made a, a movie about his life. Did they? Called Sociology as a Martial Art, which is amazing. Who's, um, who plays him? The Rock or something? <laughs> it's just a documentary. But oh. but like, I was cracking up with Die Moon about this because in the film, you know, Bourdieu goes to a rally and then he walks through the streets of Paris and this beautiful young woman chats him and starts to talk to him about like sociology and symbolic violence, which of course is exactly what happens in France. Yeah. And yeah. stuff like that. With I well, actually that stuff happens to me all the time in Portugal. <laughs> yeah. People stop me and talk about, you know, uh Gramsci and uh um, uh, the habitus of <laughs> <laughs> But it was hilarious. It's like, you know, uh, it just the fact that a philosopher has like a mural and stuff about him in France, I mean and, and the film about him was a like a mass hit. <laughs> Which I'm sure, you know, if there was a documentary about David Harvey or something like that. Or Bertrand Russell. Then it would Is there be a, any murals or statues to Bertrand it Russell would and Wales? Be a huge, uh, a huge success in, in in the UK. It's just, I don't know, it's just hilarious, the stereotypical difference between the two <laughs> societies. Right. Okay, so he's born in Donguin in the rural south of France in 1930. 
and he grows up in a lower middle class household and he's the first in his family to complete his high school education. Now this is really important. Dad was a, a postal worker. His grandfather was a sharecropper, so, you know, like a landless tenant farmer. His mother was a housewife. And he then moves to France to this preparatory sixth form, and then he undertakes... So his his nationality isn't... Was he born in France? Yeah, he's he's French, yeah, yeah. Oh, you said he moved to France. Did I? Yeah. Oh, shit. Um, No, he moved to Paris. Oh, okay. So, no, so he moves to Paris. So this is a big deal. He's from, like, rural peasant area in the south. Moves to Paris, goes to this... uh, basically like a sixth form to prepare you for university. And then he goes to, I mean, I can't pronounce any of these. He goes to the Ecole Numale Supérieure, um, and he studies philosophy actually under the famous French structural Marxist Louis Althusser. Um, Louis Boy? Li- yeah, Louis. And one of his classmates, I think, is Derrida. And to a bit about Bourdieu, like his personality, he's obviously an excellent student, but he refuse, He goes on strike and refuses to complete his, his dissertation in protest at the, what he calls, Stalinist nature of the course he's studying. He eventually does it. He passes it. Was he was he uh, studying the USSR? <laughs> he graduates. He becomes... <laughs> he graduates and becomes a teacher. But then, obviously, this is the 50s, and the French empire is basically collapsing. In particular, there's a massive war raging in, in Algeria, and he's drafted into the French army. And this, again, says a lot about Bourdieu. Because he's an educated man, they try to get him to join as an officer, but he says no, he doesn't feel like he fits in, goes in as an enlisted private. He's then sent to some rural part of France, and he starts beefing with everyone in there because he, he basically says that, you know, he agrees with Algerian independence, says that France is like an imperialist state, and pisses everyone off, and they send him to Algeria. It's like, okay, well, you're going to go out there now. And so they literally said, "If you love Algeria, so <laughs> why much, did you go there?" Yeah. So when he's there, I mean, I, I mean, he was assigned to like desk duties because I don't know how else this sort of would have happened if he was in, in an infantry brigade. But he basically becomes obsessed with studying the Algerian peasantry called the Kabyle, like the indigenous people of Algeria. He's so interested in it. He stays in Algeria beyond his two-year tour of duty and takes a position at the University of Algiers. Kind of goes native. <laughs> yeah, basically, and start studying you know the, the the natives of Algeria this is like a classical anthropology you know like just taking photos of the natives and hanging around with them trying to work out their customs some real national geographic thing yeah so he publishes you know the sociology of Algeria and then he returns to the topic and publishes Algeria 1960 and 1977 um, and then he goes back to France immerses himself in sociology becomes Raymond Aron's assistant he studies Claude Levi Strauss and then he moves to the University of Lille he basically then returns to Paris, becomes the director of studies at the School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences. He creates his own journal, becomes the director of the Centre for European Sociology. Um, and then he basically just, from the six, from the late 60s, he just goes absolutely wild and just keeps publishing. So he, he published, I think, over 37 books and 400 journal articles. What happened? He had like some weird like desk PTSD. Well, it's just a, basically a prodigious output. Like just unbelievable work ethic, and and you basically you know you, you can't read it all. You know, towards the end of his life, he becomes like massively involved in in activism, in left wing politics, and he's actually a real thorn in the side of the quote unquote socialist government at the time. So much so that the French government used to describe anyone, all their left critics, as Bourdieu's little followers because they was he would always go to these rallies and just like denounce the government and. 
denounced globalization and capitalism. And then the film was made about him in 2002, Sociology to Combat Sport, and then he died in 2002. A great man. And if you go to any, like, especially Sociology of Education conference, you know, every person in the conference will probably have made their name <laughs> studying just one tiny element of Bourdieu's ridiculous body of work. Um, because each, as I said, each one is so ridiculously, I hate to use the word rich again, it sounds like such a, a wanky academic word, but useful, that's a better word. Tasty. Yeah. I mean, he's got a very, he's got a quite a, a dense and impenetrable writing style at first. As I said in this lecture I gave, I was Googling like images to try to find one Bourdieu, and it's just like memes of people with their head in their hands, like, oh, I read Bourdieu, and now I want to kill myself. I, uh, I, I did initially, I was, uh, for like a week or, or so, I was just quite, obsessed with getting distinction you know his yeah. seminal work and then i was like oh let's maybe because it's about 15 quid or something it's like oh let's have a read of it on you know amazon give you a little preview i think i found a pdf of it online i was like oh my god it's like a like a word search and this is a thing he uses like like he's not just a theorist he's out doing you know massive like huge scale national surveys ethnographies like studying people in their everyday life using photography so he just eclectic sort of methods, but I I personally found distinction. It's all right. Like if you read the book Distinction we're talking about, you just got to get used to his writing style. It's similar, I'd say, in the way in, in my talking style, they just go keep going on yeah. different directions <laughs> with no. <laughs> and then, yeah, so it's like meandering, isn't it? A sentence is like typically like it can be as long as a paragraph for other writers and things like that. But a genius and my second best friend after Gramsci, I would say. Yeah. Or maybe equal best friend. Uh, yeah. Who's your third? Mark, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a bit weird, given that he's like the, the daddy, but... Yeah, I mean, you can't give too much preference to him. It just seems like you're sucking up to him. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do now, I'll go through his three main theories, which is habitus, capital, or the different forms of capital. You probably hear of things like cultural capital, economic capital, and the field. And we'll then, at the end, we'll talk about how we think they can help us understand contemporary Wales because there's one thing we know about contemporary Wales is that there's a widespread confusion. I think political literacy, I think people don't really have the sort of the theoretical or conceptual tools to sort of grasp what's going on. And as Nathan sort of alluded to earlier, a lot of stuff just sort of manifests itself as, oh, England are bad. England's bad. Mm, yeah, it's just... Well, Wales is amazing, but we're being binary oppressed. Binary narrative. Whereas power, and because that's what Borgia is about. Borgia is whole thing is about figuring out how power works in society and how power manifests itself. It's like pulling back the... It's a pullback and reveal. It's pulling back the veil of ignorance. Going, look, this is how it's all working. It was a it's wizard like, all along. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's what Bourdieu is all about. I mean, there's a good quote. He says, The goal of sociological research is to uncover the most deeply buried structures of the different social worlds that make up the social universe, as well as the mechanisms that tend to ensure their reproduction and transformation. So what he's saying there, he's basically saying, not only am I going to reveal to you, you know, how power exists in society, he's also going to say, well, I'm also going to show you the places and mechanisms, the how it sort of reproduces itself. But and mainly, he's he's a theorist of domination. It's about how how some people basically get to where they are, and some people sort of remain rich, and some people remain poor. Okay, so in particular, Bourdieu is obsessed with social class. If you have to think of a concept that Bourdieu will help you understand mostly it's it's class. It'll help you understand your own class. Certainly worked for me mm-hmm. um, to understand myself. What he's also he's really important is he overcomes this dichotomy between structure and agency. And if you look back at 
his like teacher Althusser, Kautsky, and a lot of all the old sort of structural Marxist and a lot of structural sociologists, what they basically claimed was that people had no free will. We're sort of determined in society, like everything's yeah, they've got predestined, yeah, isn't it? Everything's yeah. predetermined because of how sort of where we're born into. And then you've got another group of thinkers who basically claim that there is complete free will. That you know humans can do what they want. Yeah. Um. You know, and that's I guess that's in like things, sociological things like phenomenology and stuff, and and it focuses on the individual, and it doesn't really pay attention to the structures that impact on the individual. Make what Bourdieu says, and the concept of habitus captures in particular. He says that there are structures, and they definitely constrain people, but they don't constrain people entirely. So this concept is just trying to overcome that philosophical sort of issue, like why do people act? Is our life predetermined? What can we do to change our our life course? I like uh, I like actually thinking that to some extent that uh, there is an element of determinism within life because it, it kind of excuses you from perhaps <laughs> things things that you've you're not happy with. Well, I mean, you see this debate. I mean, that might seem a bit uh, abstract and acad- academic, but you see the structure agency debate all the time played out in things like. Crime is a classic. You know, people mm. say, "Oh, you know, he had no choice. He was comes from a bad background. What chance did this man have but, but to make crime?" And then you have other people, you know, your Richard no, Little Johns of the world, yeah, normally saying, "But well, why did you know? Of course, he has free will." Blah blah. Yeah. Um, I was born into a really rich family. We're basically <laughs> the same person. Yeah, but ig- ignoring all the advantages that that entails, <laughs> or you know, yeah, but but you, you see it played out. You know, teenage motherhood. Mm. Um, you know, oh well, obviously they're gonna or or, or the classic trope is like you know, bad. Single mums, bad teenage single mums, you know, and you got sort of hand wringing leftist liberals normally saying, "Oh, you know, people have no choice. They, they, this is just being done to them." And then you have conservatives again, like, "Oh, feckless idiots!" Like putting the blame on the individual mm. and ignoring sort of. I mean, this, this is it. basically the whole um, Ian uh, Duncan Smith's, uh, you know, approach to to yeah, work pensions, but, yeah, isn't but, it? Yeah, but, but habit- habitus is such an amazing concept, which I'll get into in a minute, because habitus explains. And, and if you want it to, can help explain... If you let habitus into your life. Particularly these moral panics about poverty, about the poor, why people act how they do. And what Bourdieu says, this is a, an outcome of, of what he calls habitus. Right. So we're going to talk about this concept of habitus, which, again, I'll hopefully break it down, explain yeah. it. So, I, so I'm going to give you a quote now, which kind of, exp, kind of sums up Bourdieu's writing style. If you're ever reading a book on Bourdieu, and that, this is like the definition of habitus, which is thrown around. So he says, the structure's... <laughs> constitutive of a particular type of environment produce habitus systems of durable transposable dispositions structured structures predisposed to function as structuring structures the practices produced by the habitus are the strategy generating principles enabling agents to cope with unforeseen and ever-changing situations sounds like (laughs) a pale fire by uh, nakarov was it i don't know um a system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked with a system of cells (laughs) Okay, so to break it down, the habitus is basically the external societal structures that have been internalized into an individual, and then they're sort of manifest in that person. So if you like grow up in a council estate, you kind of internalize your environment and such. Essentially, and yet, so your habitus is, yeah, it's like the external world in the body, in the individual. And so what he says about habitus is that it basically, basically it produces dispositions. So your environment, you internalize your environment and it makes you essentially act in a certain way. And so 
Habitus is basically, he says it's a composition of individual and collective trajectories and experiences. So in other words, people from similar social classes and backgrounds have similar habituses. So you can speak about a working class habitus and working class dispositions, you know, collectively. Similarly, you can talk about, you know, middle class habitus and middle class dispositions, uh, aristocratic and so on. Which is what we, this is that art, the aristocracy is our, kind of our habitus, isn't it? Ours. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Sorry about, like, if there's echoing on this recording, we're, we're recording in one of our... So basically the habitus is underlying. That's the way to think about it. It's under the surface. And your dispositions, like the way you act, are the outward manifestation of it. So habitus is like a mental structure, if that makes sense. It's a way of thinking, a way of acting and seeing the world. But it's also, it's embodied. So what Bourdieu says with that, he says habitus is actually inscribed in the body and it's actually expressed in certain ways of walking, standing, talking like your accent the way you hold yourself so you can recognize basically people's habitus by distinct ways of standing your habitus basically is durable so Bourdieu says your habitus is durable in that it lasts unquestioned normally throughout your life throughout your lifetime so in, in other words it's pretty hard to change who you are and this is what a source of one of the biggest debates within Bourdieu is the question they always poses is habitus a straight jacket like you know can you change your habitus and he also says that habitus is transposable and what he means is that habitus makes you act in different ways in different situations and contexts mm. which will all be revealed when we talk about the forms of capital and the field class any questions so far um no not not really so now we're going to come on to Bourdieu's other concept which is the forms of capital and I'm sure most people will have maybe heard of things like social capital, cultural capital, economic capital. So capital is anything with almost like uh, has the ability isn't uh, to exchange, isn't it? Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. No, no, no. So okay. So so uh, Bourdieu is often counterposed with Marx because the concept of habitus and his idea of domination is sort of rewind for a bit. He is a left winger. Bourdieu was a left winger, but his entire sort of body of work uh, almost starts against Marx in the sense that for Marx he says classes are sort of something that are objectively there in society you know you've got the working class you know the proletariat you've got the middle class the petty bourgeoisie and what Bourdieu says is that Marx looks at class in the same way sort of botanists and biologists look at like insects and worms in the laboratory it's just things that they they're just there but what Marx doesn't look at is how people understand themselves and how they come to understand themselves as belonging to different classes and she says if you don't have that understanding of everyday life and how class actually works in everyday life and how people understand the class of themselves the class of their neighbor then how can you understand and explain things like political action Mm -hmm. you can't and so that's really applicable when he comes to talk about the concept of capital because he says for for marxists a lot of them will focus on basically money Um, and he and bourdieu says you can't so uh, in, Bo- in Bourdieu's term, money would be economic capital. Yeah, yeah. So, But Bourdieu says you basically can't understand power in society if you're limiting yourself to just looking at money and property, for example. You can't. You, you just can't do it. So what he says is that power operates in more subtle ways throughout society. Um, and he says power is symbolic. We'll go through the forms of capital. So economic capital is essentially money. Mm-hmm. 
Cultural capital, well, cultural capital is a little bit more complicated and in-depth. Cultural capital is... Before we go into cultural capital, should we, what's the other form okay. of capital? So, social capital. So, social capital at its most basic is who you know, your mm-hmm. connections in society, basically. Um, if you're like us, you know loads of celebs. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the top tier of, you know, basically the establishment. Yeah. Um, so, cultural capital... Uh, if you like you, <laughs> you probably just know the bin men. Yeah. So, cultural capital is a little bit more complicated. Cultural capital basically refers to the whole set of values and dispositions that society deems to be valuable, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it can be, well, as I said, it can take a number of forms. Um, the cultural capital can basically, well, it can take three forms. It can be the embodied state. So he means dispositions of the mind and body. And so by that we mean things like the ability to play a musical instrument, the ability to hold yourself in a certain way, the ability to talk in a certain way, so your accent. Not jerk off in the library. <laughs> so it, the embodied form of cultural capital is intangible. You know, you look at a person, you think, wow, he belongs in this. He's a powerful man, You're a powerful, powerful man. Does that, make, does that make sense? Yeah, completely. So um, I like to, after reading about Bordeaux and all those theories, I like to kind of uh, apply them to work and i'd say the majority of people in my work are lower middle class mm. apart from man uh, one person maybe two people in management uh you know high management who are i'd say straight middle class yeah but um to the point where like you're saying with cultural capital that you assume or perhaps the, the assumption is there that they're smarter than you by the way they conduct themselves or that they have like access to these um, forms of art or institutions that you don't have. So, you know, to me, I always thought like they were much more intelligent, but no, they're actually really thick. Okay, so, so the embodied form of cultural capital is basically like, okay, I'll give you an example. You know, when you see, if you've ever come across people from private schools yeah. uh, or politici- politicians, you'll notice that people always say they carry themselves in a certain way. They have an, what Borgio calls, calls ease. They just look like they own a room sort of thing. Mm. Actors, celebrities, that's embodied capital. Something It's intangible, but it's the way you sort of hold yourself. The next form of capital is what he calls the objectified form of cultural capital. And when he says that, I mean, he literally means objects. Mm. So just as an embodied form of cultural capital would be to play a musical instrument, the objectified form of cultural capital would be to have a piano. Oh, I see. Yeah. So sig- signifiers of class it's and capital. It's an actual object, an actual, literal, a literal material object, mm. like a fast car musical instrument type of or like for example trombone having having books Mm. you know in a house and then he talks about the guitar the third form of cultural capital which i think is most probably most important for me the institutional form of cultural capital institutional form of cultural capital is interesting because he says he uses these like i was gonna say like wizard magic metaphors wizardry or like transubstantiation or whatever sorcery uh, yeah so things like sorcery what is this black but he says, magic he says institutional uh, cultural capital is basically is basically qualifications mm-hmm. you know exams exam results degrees swimming certificates course yeah swimming certificates girl guide badges yeah uh, scout badges it yeah so basically educational qualifications and what he says is that educational educational qualifications are kind of like the the material and again, he uses those sorcery things. Cultural capital sort of distilled in a piece of paper. So if you have a degree, it proves you have this. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a physical manifestation, isn't it? Well, it's not phys- it's just not physical, it's just it's institutionalized because oh, it's okay. it's a formal recognition yeah. of, a oh, requi- I see. of a requirement. It's an institutional manifestation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the relationships between the formal capital, so bear in mind we've got economic capital, which is, you know, what you own essentially, how much money you've got. You've got social capital, sort of who you know, and then you've got cultural capital, these things, these skills and values which are deemed valuable in society. And what Bourdieu says, although he starts off critiquing it, saying it's not about money, he says that ultimately everything is in the last instance determined by economic capital. So the classic example is people with high cultural capital, so people who can play, um, and he always focuses on mothers and motherhood in this. Like So parents who can, and parenting, parents who can give their child enough time who can invest time in their child to develop child's cultural capital, who can teach them how to play sport, who can teach them how to play musical instruments. Firstly, you need time to teach your kids this. And so what he says is that the families that tend to be able to impart lots of cultural capital to their children are the ones where the mother doesn't have to work because the dad's rich. Also, in terms of the objectified forms of cultural capital, it's the families that can afford to buy their families you know, musical instruments, skiing lessons and also families from families who managed to pass that on so the the social capital aspect of that and then he says that you know cultural capital begets social capital so if you play in these sports teams if you go to the opera and if you if you develop these forms of cultural capital um which you can only get if you have money you then start to mix with the same types of people at the club or the yacht club or rowing club or things like that the opium den um you meet people he actually talks about forms of exchange within these relationships that are informal, so like gift giving, things like that. Ways of sort of cementing friendships through economic relations. Kind of like how, I guess, traditionally business deals would yeah. be done on a golf course. Yeah, yeah. that's exact that's a great example. And then that then feeds back into economic capital. So that's how these sort of certain classes and certain people sort of stay rich. Okay, so that's capital then. So we now know what capital is. And the next one, next main concept concept is this idea of the field. And so the field is, I guess, is very important because it's it's where the habitus and where capital occurs, if you, if you want. It's where things take place. So whereas like Marxist, again, would think of society as sort of, you know, the base and the superstructure, the economy and then the media, things like that. What Bourdieu does, he actually splits up society into a series of distinct arenas or institutions of fields yeah so basically for example you've got the field of art the field of the media the education field the business field the military field prisons the economic field so basically the society is composed of these autonomous fields each with their own set of rules and when he talks about the fields he always talks uses sports metaphors and that people within these fields in society so if you're in the whatever field you enter, people have certain positions and people are always competing against one another for power in the field. And he talks about the habitus and he says the habitus is is about having an intuitive understanding of the rules of the game. So that only really makes sense if you locate it within a particular field, which is the sort of structure for the habitus. Okay, so Bourdieu basically develops the idea of symbolic power and capital, you know, especially cultural capital, in relationship to the field. Yeah, so I think um, that a really good example of that is... The podcast to- field. Yeah, where <laughs> we have loads and little economic 
capital. No, but in terms of in Twitter, like yeah. you know, you have Twitter's people, a field for sure. You yeah. have you know like, subfield subfields also. We were saying this before, just like it's almost Twitter's almost like this kind of free market uh, cultural capital like field where you know whoever can craft like the almost uh, most retweetable status you know gains power. I certainly think that Twitter is. You can understand Twitter using budget and the concept of field and, and capital for sure. Um, and language plays an important role in fields. You know, language is, is a massive part of symbolic power. There are certain ways of writing and speaking on Twitter and using the right buzzwords, yeah, which, like, which give you cultural capital. Yeah, or, basically. or becoming like not a profile but a brand. Yeah, essentially. You pricks. <laughs> yeah. So, but basically, the point is, he says, within a field, especially subfields like art, um, where the point about power is that it's not necessarily economic or material. Power and status operates in, in other ways. And then he talks about habitus. He basically says that, you know, the relationship between the habitus and the field is the habitus, it becomes active in relation to a field. And the same habitus will lead to very different practices depending on the state of the field, depending on sort of what field you're in. Okay, and so the habitus reacts to the field in different ways. Most people because of upbringing and the type of industries, I guess, that people from, let's say, working-class, middle-class backgrounds go into, they feel, as Bourdieu puts it, as a fish in water. There's no tension between the habitus of the person, their dispositions, their mental structures, and the field that they occupy. But what's interesting is when there's a clash between habitus and field. And so, obviously, in that situation is what Bourdieu would call you feel like a fish out of water. And this, there are so many examples of this in Hollywood or in in literature. You know, Goodwill Hunting. You know, Will Hunt, Will Hunting is obviously a genius. Has obviously academic capital, but his habitus, like the way he is, his dispositions are essentially working class, and he is completely out of place in the academic field of you know higher education. So there's a huge clash between his values, his dispositions of his upbringing. You know, what Bourdieu calls a habitus. And the field, so he feels like a fish out of water. There are other, and there are other examples of you know, this clash between habitus and, and field. You can think of, I can think of loads. Can yeah. I go for it? Yeah, sure. So recently, was I watching I Tonya uh, about yeah. Tonya Harding, the figure skater, mm-hmm. and um, you know she was a working class uh, yeah. girl trying to navigate a very middle class yeah. field in terms of ice skating. But you know she's the first person to land that triple thing. Yeah, well, and uh, took out one of her teammates' kneecaps. Yeah, I didn't think that story was real, but it's absolutely amazing. Isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? No, like, the, the guy who did it, he, he literally was deluded. He thought he was just like worked as special ops, but he just lived with his mum. Immense. Yeah, like us. Yeah, or yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like us, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hope that explains some of the key concepts. And the other main one is the concept we talked about earlier: is distinction. The Bible, Bodhi's Bible, is an amazing book. Uh, I think it's 1979 is published. But distinction's amazing because he starts to flesh out how people understand class in everyday life. And what he says is that habitus manifests itself in aesthetics, in consumption practices, in, above all, in taste. So we know who you, you are based on your lifestyle, you know, your type of house you live in, the art you have in your house, if you have art. You know, the, it's awesome because... In distinction, obviously, he does like a stock take of French cultural practices, and he's like, "Oh, uh, the the proletariat only read these philosophers, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and only listen to this, you know, 
opera music and only you know uh, and you think oh my god it's such a french thing because um but you know so what he says is that you know so different classes have different tastes different classes have different tastes in sport the working class like boxing they like football cockfighting beer baiting <laughs> dog fighting mm. yeah and the upper classes like things like polo tennis shooting the, black people in the uk rugby things like this but uh, so i'm sure we'll get to this but rugby is an interesting thing that you chose mm. Because obviously in South Wales it is seen as a working class sport, and it? actually, in, ironically, in distinction, he, he uses it as a working class sport because in South of France it is as well. Oh, that's... Um, but yeah, and it, obviously the signifiers are different from country to country and place mm. to place. So it's not like a one one size fits all. Well, it depends on the context. So I remember when I asked, like, I was talking about class when I taught a group of international students before from Japan, um, and I showed them a photo from the Daily Mail of a group of quote unquote chavs. Mm. I hate that word, but it was a group of lads in. In tracksuits. Yeah. And I said, who are these people, do you think? And they were like, oh, they're obviously athletes. You yeah. Because they're wearing Nike and Adidas. Um, and it was interesting, because <laughs> you know, obviously the signifi- the cultural signifiers were just not known at all. That's um, amazing, isn't it? I'm not, uh, you know, the underclass. I'm a professional <laughs> athlete. Yeah, it's immense. Um, so what Bourdieu says about distinction, he says, the social space and the differences that spontaneously emerge within it tend to function symbolically as a space of lifestyles. So the habitus is basically translated into lifestyles and aesthetic into symbols. The type of music you listen to, the TV you watch, the comedy you watch, every class and every subclass and every class fraction has different cultural and lifestyle tastes. And what he says, interestingly, he says, taste is first and foremost distaste in that we know what class we're part of by our revulsion at the the tastes and, and practices and aesthetics of other classes. So that person on the house is absolutely mean. Mm. Like fashion's another obvious one. He talks about hairstyles, you know, so working class people have different hairstyles. And he also talks about bodies. Like he says working class men tend to favour, you know, the big muscular look. Mm. Whereas the middle classes prefer the sort of like lean, svelte. And he talks about, you know, this this the middle class body is very different. And so if you start looking round and if you I mean Did you have a wife? <laughs> I don't know what I mean, but but it's I mean, but once you start, once you read distinction, it, I mean, it, it's the stuff we know. We instinctively know that this is how class operates and how class is understood. But Borgia is great because it, you know, it allows us to just really understand. I mean, food's another one. You know, like shopping people shopping baskets. You look at someone's shopping basket, you can instantly tell. You know what class someone is. Are they getting Charlie Biggums or are they just eating loads of crisps? By the food they eat and so on. But um, I mean, is, isn't that, I always found that it was, excuse the pun, I guess, distinctive or maybe it was a bit rigid in terms of how it classified people, isn't it? I mean, you can, like you're saying, you could be uh, someone who is culturally working class but has money. Yeah. And, you know, lives in a big house. I think about it in terms of like the guys on site and work who the way, you know, they would, uh, the signifiers would be definitely working class, like, you know, what they do, like the culture they consume, but they're all on like, you know, upwards, uh, almost about 50k a year, just, you know. No, but, but, but that's what that's why Bourdieu is so useful, because Bourdieu, you know, if you're looking, if you're using like a Marxist understanding of class, let's say, or a rigid understanding of class, you would look at those guys and you'd say, well, you know, this is what, and this bugs me on Twitter all the time. People always say, you can't be, this guy can't be working class or footballers aren't working class because mm. they're really rich. So, so what Bourdieu yeah. says, well, actually, as everyone knows, in reality, class and status 
is defined by your aesthetics. And that, and so new money, mm. what you talked about there, is a classic example of how this works. So basically people have, you can have money, but you still have working class signifiers, working class tastes, yeah. and that's how people understand you, and that's how people understand yourself. So, you know, it's like, think of any number of films when, you know, a, a poor man comes into some money, goes to a restaurant, doesn't know how to act, you know. Titanic. Yeah, wears the wrong clothes or things like that. And so that's how class actually operates in everyday life, is that people understand different lifestyles that different classes have. So recently, um, I might as well just say it, that on Twitter, Ash Saka started a beef with our comrade and friend Lisa McKenzie, yeah. saying that there's no way she's working class because, you know, she has a job in a university. And, like, Ash is also... Um, I remember seeing something uh, she was interviewing... No, she's been interviewed um, for like the Indo- um, the Independent, and she was talking about class, and she's literally saying to this independent this journalist for the Independent, "Listen, do you own your own house?" And she's like, and the person's like, "No, well, you're working class," as if that's the only signifier. Yeah, well, the, the, but I mean, like you know, in terms of like you know, from someone to have access to basically uh, a column in a you know a national newspaper to be friends with the leader of the opposition, and then just decide that that's the only kind of, you know, qualifier for class is just absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Well, yeah, because, I mean, this is the thing, when people, I mean, I still think it's a massive, I mean, Bourdieu isn't widely known, I mean, I started my PhD, I'd done international relations, political theory, and I not heard of him, and I remember I was in Italy, in a library, and there were like three or four English language books, one of which was a book which featured Bourdieu, and so, you know, I, I'd never come across this guy at all, read it, and I was like, this is amazing. Emailed my tutor, my, my, my supervisor, and was like, oh, I've been, uh, hi, Howard, I've actually been um, reading the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, you know, spelled his name wrong. Yeah. Um, and Howard's like, oh, great to see you again into, you know, Bourdieu. And then you check his publications, he's like written yeah. loads about Bourdieu. And I'm like, oh, shit. But I'd never, <laughs> but I'd never heard of him. And I don't, I think one of the reasons he needs to be widely, more widely read and understood is, is precisely what you say is that, Particularly on the left, people have a weird. Yes, of course, it's technically correct. Even Bourdieu wouldn't deny it's technically correct to say, for example, anyone that sells their labour mm. is working class. But what Bourdieu would say is that that doesn't matter because that's not how people understand class in their day to day lives, in no. real life. And what people. And so, yes, we sell our labour. You can be technically working class because you don't own your own business and you're a wage slave, but we're all wage slaves into capitalism. The point is you can have very high forms of social and cultural capital and basically middle class tastes. And you can have symbolic power, huge forms of symbolic power, as a lot of these quote unquote working class uh, journalists uh, have huge symbolic power within the particular field that they work in, even if they're not particularly rich. Mm. I guess it's probably worth talking about some concrete examples I always use to illustrate Bourdieu. And we, I think I talked about it in the Polly episode with higher education and, and when Polly went to Oxbridge, because that's a classic example of, you know, a fish out of water. But Bourdieu spent a lot of time looking at education and educational outcomes. And what he found is that, you know, why do so many working class kids, and this is a problem, an intractable problem, a problem that every society tries to grapple with and they never seem to get past it because they don't read Bourdieu, I guess. And he's saying, well, why do working class kids do badly at school? Um, and why do middle class kids do well at school? And he basically says because middle class kids have very high cultural capital that is inculcated by their parents sort of investing time in them. And he also says that it's because the kids habitus 
matches the education field. So the kids basically feel at home in school. And what Bourdieu comes up with this idea of the hidden curriculum. So he says that what counts in education isn't actually the stuff you get taught in class. It's not the formal education. It's the it's the environment, it's the school, it's the other things that you're expected to know. And what he says is that working class people basically don't know these implicit unwritten rules about how to survive and thrive in school. And that's why they, they feel out of place, basically, in, in schools. And that's why middle class people feel in place. And so I talk about the paired peers scheme? I think we have already talked about it. Yeah, go for it. Um, so the paired peers project was something that was done in Bristol Uni. It's fantastic. And it was basically com- looking at the sort of life trajectories of students, uh, working class students and middle class students. And they take two universities, so UWE, uh, so, you know, like a post-1992, and then Bristol University, which is a, a Russell Group University, very old, prestigious. And they look at one working class student from South Wales who get, gets very good A-level results and goes to Bristol University, gets into Bristol University. She's from a family where no one has ever been to university, from an area in South Wales where people don't typically go to university. The other example is um, a middle-class student who doesn't do particularly well on their A-levels, um, is very rich, comes from a middle-class family in London, and goes to UWE. And they both study in law. And the reason they picked law is that law is traditionally a profession where you need social connections and capital to thrive in. So they follow these two students throughout university. The working-class one basically goes to university and just studies. Um, because she hasn't got any money, she has to work. She works behind a bar. Then over the summer, she just works behind a bar and works academically, works her ass off. The middle-class girl in the you know less prestigious university, yeah, she does some studying, but she throws herself into extracurricular activities. She's, you know, the captain of certain clubs. She's in this sort of sports team. She's a president of this society. Then in the summer holidays, whilst the working-class student works in a bar, she goes and volunteers in Africa. She goes and... The working-class student graduates from Bristol with a first-class degree, and the middle-class student graduates from UE, you know, the less good university, with a 2-2. And then they check up on these students these girls, you know, like six months or a year later, where are they in their legal careers? And where do you think they were? Well, so <clears throat> no doubt the uh, middle class girl had more of a successful career because she has the connections and the cultural capital to navigate it when the working class person is probably just working in peacocks or something. Yeah, so basically it's pretty tragic, but the working class student, I believe, was back working in a call centre mm. and the middle class one was in a magic circle law firm in London, and there are a number of reasons Listeners, for that. Listeners, and I was that woman who went to... <laughs> and there are a number of reasons for that, and it illustrates you know, a number of Bourdieu's uh, concepts pretty nicely. So so basically, the the middle-class student, you know, despite not having the right grades, and this is what Bourdieu says, the hidden curriculum, you know, basically it's the fact it's not about your institutionalised cultural capital in the form of a degree is important, but in this instance, it's clearly not the most important thing. So it'll be things like embodied cultural capital. The fact this girl, the middle-class one, is confident. She feels at home. This sense of ease, the way she holds herself. She, she's probably well spoken and confident and articulate. She's not nervous in these situations because she's spent all her summers, you know, volunteering. And as Bourdieu says, that all traces back to economic capital. You know, why can she do these things? Well, because she can afford to. There's a social capital element in terms of like father, I think, 
in this original study has connections that allows her to do internships in in these law firms. And she also lives in London, like living in London, being you know being from London and living in London is a huge deal because she can afford to do internships and live rent free. Um, I was going to say, in terms of like saying that you know it all kind of boils down to economic capital and social capital. Could it be argued that larger cultural capital is like a face of both of those, but almost a shorthand for it? Which one now? Uh, so cultural capital is a shorthand or a kind of face for both social capital and economic capital. Yeah. Rather than it being a complete separate capital itself. Yeah, they're all no, they're all in, they're all interlinked, like, mm. um, they're all interlinked. Um, but I just think the the paired peers project is a good example of how how the all these concepts come together. The other one is this idea of uh, learning to learning to labour, studied by Paul Willis. I think this is the sixties in the Midlands, and he looks at working class boys and why working class boys again just don't get on with school. and And what he finds is that these boys, well, I mean, I think Paul Willis was writing actually before he's using Bourdieu concepts essentially, although before Bourdieu is sort of translated into English. But the teachers in his school, like you know, why do these lads just mess around all the time? And this guy spends all this time with the boys. And what he says is that these boys, uh, their habitus is basically completely incompatible with the educational field. So he says that the boys, and, he, and it, what's good is he draws attention to the role of the family. He says these boys come from families where the dads work in very masculine, manual, unskilled jobs in factories. And what this does is inculcates values. Different value, values are passed down into the boys. The boys essentially inhabit a different world. And in that world, the most important things are fighting, being the being the toughest guy, mm-hmm. um, being the best with women, mm-hmm. being the most you know, being the kindest, best listener. Yeah, uh, no. we think we made that joke, <laughs> yeah. we already. Um, Be- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was a good one. Yeah. Um, so, all right, and so. But I mean, this was uh, for. I'm currently watching season four of The Wire, and you know, this is literally what happens in when Prez is the yeah when the so. Teacher. So uh, season four, because I've kind of re- realized while watching The Wire that it's not about, you know, drug gangs. It's more about institutions and how they act. And there's, a, you know, there's loads of Bordeaux theory, uh, Bordeaux theory that can be applied to it. So in season four, they take um, what are known as the corner kids, the kids who grow up on the streets. And, you know, the, the most meaningful form of employment for them is selling drugs. So they don't they mess around in school and they're really disruptive until they're all taken out and uh, these separate classes and put one to themselves, and then I think there's literally as well a sociologist studying them. Oh right, yeah, yeah. So it literally like what you're saying about um, Will's study is that their their habitus is outside of school and they actively want to get made uh, suspended so they can concentrate on having this capital on the street of selling drugs yeah so that you know the, the habitus is it just clashes with the field so their habitus is developed by their upbringing by their families by the community Even they have diff- they have different dispositions different views of authority different types of authority privilege and so in, as in paul willis's study and as in pretty much every other study of working class kids in school that leads to a clash between the values of the school or you know what's called the institutional habitus, I guess, uh, and the habitus and values of the boys, and so, so the question Paul Willis asked, he said, "Why do working class kids always get working class jobs? You know, why does class reproduce itself? Why does poverty reproduce itself?" And he says, "Because these boys, so fucking feckless, <laughs> because these boys want, they don't want to get academic qualifications because they want to be a foreman in a factory like their dad, and so they the forms of capital that they they cultivate." The school sees as being deviant and inappropriate 
But for them, it's entirely rational and logical because it's, well, yeah, I'm going to, to have a fight or whatever, but because in my world, that is the best thing. But it's also a rational act because it, it, it sort of helps you. It's a status. It's, you know, it's status. And they contrast that with sort of, you know, the middle class kids whose values are, and aspirations are completely different, governed by, you know, um, and, and forms of capital are different. So, you know, those kids will be learning to play musical instruments and, and so on and so forth. It's probably worth briefly mentioning some of the more recent updates in the sort of field of Borgesian studies, because a lot of people have been engaging in, well, trying to update Borgia, you know, because he didn't view his theories as you know, rigid dogma. He sort of viewed them as a heuristic and something you used to apply to ever-changing societies. And I guess one of the interesting ones is people discussing how flexible the habitus is, how durable it is, and whether it can change. There's an interesting bit of work by Jesse Abrahams and Nicola Ingram, and it's called Chameleon Habitus. And what it does, it looks at working-class students who are able to move in and out of different fields. So the traditional view of education was, as I just said, that you know working-class students with a working-class habitus feel out of place in school they feel out of place in like elite universities so you know if a working class student went to Oxbridge as in our Pali episode you immediately feel out of place but they studied a group of students who are working class in elite universities and what they found is that these students like quite seamlessly were able to fit in in one field like the elite university and then they fit in in another like no problem is that the kind of thing like you kind of want to don't want to bump into anyone you know from different social circles when you're out with someone else because well, i guess it's well my take on this and this when i eventually get time and a job you know to write on it do you remember the departed yeah vaguely well, <laughs> well you know in the departed when um, mark Wahlberg is leo comes and he does his his first interview with uh, martin sheen and mark Wahlberg, and they're trying to sort of recruit him into this undercover unit yeah and what they find out you know, he's like, you lace curtain, motherfucker. You know, and yeah. because he says you were like... Shakespeare. Yeah, because he was like, he goes, I bet you did. He's like, I bet you were like two fucking people. Because he goes, Leonardo DiCaprio's dad was divorced, you know, working class guy. But he spent his weeks or his weekends or his summer holidays with his mother in like an upscale part of Boston. So Mark Wilbur goes, you were like two different people. So just in like Jesse Abrams and Nicola Ingram's work, The Chameleon Habitus... The reality, I think, is that most people have elements of, and this is most significant if you're thinking about a place called a place like Porthcawl, or if you're thinking about concepts like social mobility. A lot of people now aren't uniformly, you know, like working class, middle class in terms of their influences. So, upward social mobility is a classic example of this. You know, you can have, you know, working class parents, working class family, but then you're in a middle class environment so so you grew up essentially i think with elements of both mm. and you i think it's important to have that if you want to be this if you are to be like a chameleon and comfortable in loads of different fields because you'd have to have you have to necessarily have had experience and knowledge of a certain field if you're going to feel comfortable in it yeah i mean that's a bit like us and like one weekend we'll go to the opera and the yeah, next exactly. we'll be doing uh watching bare knuckle fighting in a band exactly and uh, you know you, you just kind of have to adapt to that environment in a convincing way and yeah, and social mobility is interesting, and we need to think about this because social mobility happens a lot. You know, a lot of Welsh people, for example, are moving out of Wales to England. A lot of people move. drop your accent type thing. Yeah, people move from the valleys to Porthcawl, and so on and so forth. So there's loads of interesting developments uh, in Borgesian studies at the moment. Another one was 
it's called hiring like job hiring is cultural matching so this woman in america has done a study of you know how elite firms like how they hire people and what she found was what they basically do is again your qualifications aren't necessarily the most important thing people who are on the hiring panels of these elite firms basically tend to just pick what they call people like us so yeah. you know someone you see yourself in and that's why they ask all these especially the elite firms ask prospective recruits you know what do you like you know tell us about yourself what do you like to do you know and and the people who crew or play badminton or go horse riding those are the people who are going to be oh you know interesting whereas you know oh yeah i love to get like hammered with my mates mm. you know um go watch football do a few keys uh, <laughs> get you know uh, and so on um those people probably aren't going to be hired which is why you lie in job interviews oh right i just was honest the whole time about yeah because you do go horse riding and polo and stuff <laughs> yeah like that. i do which is why i work in a <laughs> heat and ventilating firm <laughs> all right but how does all this apply to Wales then? Oh, tough shit. You know, this is the end of the episode. Let's just go to the shout-outs. Yeah, so who's your shout-out this time? <laughs> um, shout-out to Alan Cairns for trolling everyone. No, so I think it's very important that we use, we, we use sort of budget in our, well, not just in our everyday life. I think it's useful for thinking about, you know, your own social class, you know, your own habitus and, and how power works. When we did the podcast with Lisa McKenzie, and we, Lisa went down to Flatley to film for the week. Um, the hour, isn't it? Oh, the hour, sorry. Um, the hour. It didn't have that long a schedule. And she discussed class there, and what she was struck by was sort of desperation from politicians and people alike to sort of say that social class doesn't matter. And Wales is obviously a quite a, an unusual country, and she was surprised by that because one of the ways Wales is sort of defined and understood maybe internationally is its close links with this idea of an industrial working class. And indeed, if you think about one of the applications of Bourdieu, well, very basic, but you know, some some brilliant up and coming scholars, you know, mm. Evans. Yeah, I've heard a Evan, lot about Evans, two thousand eighteen. Yeah, um, two thousand nineteen. You know, he applies. The way, the, you, you know, people apply the the idea of the habitus to the nation. So this idea that nationhood is sort of implicated in the idea of the habitus, and that people understand their sort of Welsh ways of thinking, Welsh ways of speaking. And even holding yourself and like that soccer AM thing when they go to the Pont de Prix and ask people about uh, nicknames like Eggy Bat. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's just like a particular form of South Wales Welshness, which is sort of like distilled in those people. You, they, they couldn't be anything other than other than Welsh. So people understand the nation almost in the same way they understand the habitus. And that's kind of controversial because what people say is that they're just working class people and the signifiers are just regional. So what I've argued is that I think it's quite useful in, under, in understanding Welshness itself. Um, but the point is, I guess that the point is that Welshness itself is bound up with working classness. You know, my PhD and my research is focused on when you ask people what Welsh identity is, most people have two understandings of Welshness. The first one is this linguistic form of Welshness. You know, you have to speak Welsh to be Welsh. Or the other one, which is values Welshness. You have to be basically Welshness is tied to being working class. When you say tied to being working class, you mean it's tied to certain behaviours, which are both positive and negative. So your positives, friendliness, openness, like close community, warmth. The negatives would be, you know, essentially all the negative connotations of working class people, you know, rough, scummy, um, over the, like loud, basically. Doesn't describe us, but <laughs> No, but so, so that's one of the first applications, I guess, is to, to use a concept of habitus to understand the nation. But the other one is... 
you know, how does sort of power operate in, in contemporary worlds? I think when we chat to Lisa, I think a few of us were debating this on Twitter, is to think about how does class and power operate within contemporary post-evolution world? Because as we've said before, there is quite a basic understanding of, of class and power in Wales in that it's still, you know, it's the English or... It's that binary narrative, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and what Lisa drew attention to was the fact that, well, actually, you know, we've got our own cast of deeply Blairite politicians and Welsh people, you know, who were born here, raised here. We've got a Welsh middle class. And they're sort of, these are the powerful people in our society. So I started thinking, well, how is class structured? Because, you know, Dave Adamson and a couple of other people, like in the 90s, started to do this amazing work about the nature of class in Wales and how it was affecting politics. So what he basically said was that the old working class in the valleys was going to be completely destroyed and fragmented by Thatcherism. And then what would happen when most people would, the younger people in particular, would leave. They would be sort of geographically, well, socially... Displaced almost? Well, yeah, there would be social mobility and that people would move away to get opportunities. Uh, and that was sort of had a geographical element in that most people would move and did move actually to places like Cardiff, Porthcawl, the M4 corridor, which is what we're seeing, he said what would happen was that people would, after a few generations, they break with this sort of labour tradition and start voting conservative because all the, you know, your family ties with this working class background would be broken. To an extent, you saw that even back in the 80s with people, you know, South Wales was one outside London, South Wales was the area in the UK with the biggest swing to Thatcherism. Oh yeah, my... Uh, um, my- grandmother she lived in a council state but you know she didn't see herself as everyone else on there so she voted for thatcher yeah so there's um we need to have a, a conversation really a national conversation about the cla- the contemporary class structure of wales i mean robin mann great sociologist has been doing some work on this we chatted about it on twitter so what i wanted to offer i guess some brief thoughts about it class has normally been understood if you go back to michael hector and internal colonialism there's been this idea that the english not just in westminster but English people in Wales are the upper class and middle class. And what Hector said in internal colonialism, he said there was a cultural division of labour in Wales in that essentially English people were in charge of businesses, the mines, the steelworks. And there were other works, like people did studies of, sociological studies of places like Swansea. And they actually found that if you look at sort of smallish towns and cities, there is a division, a cultural division of labour in that you definitely got a disproportionate amount of English people in owner or managerial roles. But what other these other works looked at, so you have also got, definitely got a local Anglo-Welsh middle class as well. But that was like back in the 60s and 70s. And now if you fast forward today, Robin Mann was looking at some statistics. And in post-evolution Wales, one of the main ways class has been spoken about is to do with the Welsh language. The debate has been warped, ruined a bit by people like Di Smith, and other Labour historians who basically created this folk devil and this caricature of Welsh speakers as being, you know, middle class, the crachach, you know, them down the bay. And so there's this association between the Welsh language and, and being middle class. I think that's been like the most, the central discussion of class in post-evolution Wales, this idea that there is some shadowy Welsh-speaking elite that runs Wales. And, but then the interesting thing is... There is a grain of truth to that, which we have to sort of talk about. And I think that people who are promoting the Welsh language and talking about Welsh language, people always wonder why Plaid Cymru don't succeed. This is a central part of it. Reading, you know, Harold Carter and I think it's John Aitchison as well. This is, you know, classic 
geographers who used to write a lot about the Welsh language, even back in in 1997, they're saying, well, back in the day, all the works, the managers were, were migrants. They were basically English. He says, above the works manager in the occupational status were the migrant factory owners. Higher still were the English educated landowners with military rank and bearing. At the top of both spirals, there is an essential Englishness. But what they say, they say, this system, this idea that English people, are, there's a cultural division of labour where English people are in charge. He says it's being challenged at the moment by a movement of a considerable number of Welsh speakers educated in the university and colleges of Wales into influential posts in both bureaucracy and the media, thereby creating a new Welsh-speaking bourgeoisie and a new elite. I mean, there is. It's undeniable if you look at gentrification in Cardiff. And there are actually statistics out now that, that prove this, that spatially this is significant so in the capital in cardiff welsh speakers are disproportionately overrepresented in professional classes teachers lawyers solicitors you know the media um Politician. politics and even if you just visit places like chapter art center or Camden or Pontcana, there is definitely a new welsh language um sort of cast who are influential and i think that I mean, that has to be understood when you're talking about uptake of the welsh language why don't people send the kids to welsh speaking schools why don't kids, uh, why don't ethnic minorities uh, work in the Welsh Assembly? And even, you know, why don't people vote Plaid Cymru? Um, it's because there is a perception, especially in places like Cardiff, that, you know, the Welsh language is associated with middle-classness. It's also false to say that Welsh speakers are running the country because other statistics show that, you know, English people still run the country as well. So what we're seeing is basically a split in the ruling class and middle class of Wales. It tends to be either English or Welsh language but the people who are at the bottom are again this is geographically determined so in the south proletariat are still the Anglo-Welsh you know monoglot mm-hmm. English language speakers and in North Wales interestingly so this is what's interesting there's a great article we've just been reading recently called Chip Shop Welsh Aspects of Welsh Speaking Identity in Contemporary Wales by Yolo Maddock Jones Adet Parry and Dawn Jones at Glyndua University so what they say is that within the Welsh language world of North Wales You've got a clear, again, elite that you know, speak the Welsh language. Within linguistics, there's a concept called deglossia, which means that within a language, there's like a high version and a low version, like an official version and a, a not official version. And so what they say in, in North Wales, in Welsh-speaking areas, there are people who are elite Welsh speakers who occupy professional roles, you know, people that run the town councils, people that run, just run things, basically. And these are the people that have what they call high Welsh good written competence in the Welsh language. And then they say, but there's also a massive Welsh-speaking proletariat that have been completely marginalised in places like Bangor, Carnarvon, Blaenau And if you go up there, you'll see what I mean. And so what they say, this is related to language competence. So these people are Welsh speakers, but they don't speak high Welsh, for want of a better word. You know, they're, they're not comfortable in their written ability in the Welsh language and their speaking ability because they think that their Welsh is kind of like slang, a dialect and not sort of basically posh posh Welsh language so there's there are further divides within the Welsh language and that is sort of expressed regionally we're going to have we'll have further discussions hopefully I'll get Robin on Robin Mann to talk about this in more detail and ex- explain all this but when we start thinking about concepts like gentrification in Cardiff what you'll find is you know a Welsh there's definitely a Welsh speaking face in some parts of South Wales to gentrification but that's almost a red herring I mean, we can't get sucked into this idea that, you know, there is this Welsh-speaking crack act because that's very that's a really simplistic idea and it, it overlooks the fact that, you know, Welsh speakers elsewhere 
a working class. And there's a guy called Sean Jones in Cardiff who's actually looking into this at the moment. He's basically like posed the question, are Welsh schools middle class? Well, they they have less free school meals, pupils, but they're also not really rich types either. A lot of people are low middle class parents. So it's something we need to start thinking about. And I think Bourdieu is a really good tool for thinking about how class manifests itself and intersects and interacts with with language in Wales because we've got an extra element to how class operates in this country. And so using, you know, the language Bourdieu's concepts, well, what we can say is that as the Welsh language has become institutionalised in Wales and basically become important, in many ways you can argue that language competence is in itself a form of capital and symbolic power within certain fields uh, that you can sort of mobilise basically to accrue social and economic capital. But again, that's a bit of a, it's important not to get too fixated on it because as go down that rabbit hole, you'll say that, well, people send their kids to Welsh language schools, for example, just so they get better jobs and become sort of powerful people and get jobs in the media sort of thing. And I'm sure there are parents that do that. Probably all of them. No, well, no, but this is a, this is the thing. I think it's very dangerous to, to, to start talking like that because for many people going to, you know, the Welsh language, is a, it's an inherent good in itself. But, I mean, in terms of, say, uh, a family who don't speak Welsh to send their children to a Welsh school. Yeah, but, but well, there are loads of reasons why you do it. Mm. Um, there are loads of reasons why you do it. For some people, it's convenience. It can be the lo- a good local school. I mean, who wouldn't want their kids to go to a good school? But undoubtedly, within politics and within the media, um, it's, it's, it's sort of another string to your bow to speak Welsh. But even, even having this conversation now and arguing that the language is a form of capital is... I guess, and I can understand it, people are pissed off and dangerous because I don't want it, the Welsh language to be demonised in any way, which is what sort of tends to happen when you're having these conversations that it's associated with, you know, this elite. But the other problem, and this is relates to language policy, is that a lot of the way the Welsh language is sold to the nation by politicians and in language documents is that it is useful. Like, you know, it helps you get a job. And people say that all the time on Twitter. And it's like, all right, well... If you're selling something as a form of capital, then don't don't be surprised when people start to resent it. Start, yeah, beating it like that. Cultural capital is a good heuristic for understanding uh, contemporary Wales, and we'll return to it in future episodes. But now you can go away and not bother and us on Twitter. Brag about Bourdieu and how awesome he's. But I would recommend going out and read read Bourdieu, particularly read Distinction which is like the Bible, it's the greatest book ever. Yeah, I think I mentioned before in a previous podcast that um, Mike Savage's social class oh, yeah, of the shit. 21st century is that uses a lot of the concepts. Yeah, and that's, that speaks to how influential Bourdieu is. Yeah, that's his legacy. So the great British social class survey, yeah. I think Lisa... Quiz. I think Lisa was involved in that. And then the BBC... So this is jointly run by the BBC. You could go on the BBC, couldn't you? And you, can, you could fill in... You basically and work out what your, your social class was. Yeah, but it wasn't. Uh, um, it, it wasn't say um, working class, middle class. No, no. It, it was, was it these was new class, class systems. Yeah. But the awesome thing and that Borgia's legacy was, it doesn't just ask you know what's your job, what's your income. You know, it says stuff like you know, do you know people who like you have to list the type of jobs that your friends have. Yeah. You have to list what you like to do culturally. The bank so, details. Yeah. <laughs> so there's an understanding now, like a formal understanding that class isn't just about how much money you earn, although you know that is definitely important, and, and your job, it's about cultural things and like your taste and lifestyles. Can I also plug another book that I found really good, sure. uh, which was Introducing Social Theory, and it's just like a kind of 
undergrad textbook and it just covers say like all different social concepts um yeah bordeaux and then it's it's just quite accessible and uh, that's by pip jones liz bradbury and sean le boutillier um i think it's quite expensive but if you get a second hand it's like a tenner and it's it's good cool we'll plug it and we'll send people some reading lists which is something I've been do- promising that I would do since the yeah. started. If more people use the email address, we'd have more That's true, motive yeah, we've, we've, to do it. Yeah, we've got an email address. So actually, yeah, here we go. If you want reading lists or um, anything like that, just email us on, is it desolationwales at gmail.com? <laughs> don't even know it. Oh, we don't even know it. Maybe we're getting loads of emails on a different account that doesn't exist. But um, it's on Twitter, I think. So uh, yeah, give us a shout on that. Uh, I think think that's probably it for this week shout outs nath um yeah uh shout outs and beef i'm gonna give shout outs to haribo sweets because i've eaten them eating them a lot today of uh shout outs as well to the wire season four which i what was it season five how many seasons are there five five yeah so i've watched four seasons and it's great and my beef is gonna be with my cat who made you <laughs> ill yesterday still ill still ill my cat hurt dan's sinuses <laughs> what about you Sharon? uh oh yeah um so we'll talk about this next week but there's been i guess a, a victory in the battle against baglan Talbot prison so shout outs to all the amazing local people that sort of mounted their own campaign there and beef obviously with the welsh government for what they've done they basically you know they, they've reversed their decision to build to you know to host the ministry of justice uh prison in Batalbot, and now they've kind of spun it that they're like really woke and progressive and actually we don't want to build prisons man we're all about rehabilitation nowadays yeah. which is obviously complete bullshit so wait, just, wait till they want to brag about being tough on crime uh, they're just absolutely craven uh craven idiots um so that's the beef as usual and that's it i think oh we're also going to start ordering more t-shirts because we sold out very quickly and we didn't uh well before people had a chance to buy some. We also promised people, people won competitions and we 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 forgot to factor those in when we were taking orders and stuff. So yeah. um, we've let everyone down, but we'll be ordering some more. Eventually, yeah. And that's it. Okay. Peace, bye. guys. Bye. Thanks so much. Cheers. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in action. Jack says you've got a great big cock. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess so. May I see it? Really? Please. Thank you, Eddie. No problem. Thanks, Eddie. Bye.